Cybertruck rolls out and EV deals follow. Motley Fool Money starts now. Welcome to Motley Fool Money. I'm Deidre Willard here with Motley Fool analyst Bill Barker. How are you today, Bill? I'm well. Thanks for asking. How are you? I'm doing great. So over the weekend, uh, Tesla tweeted out the first picture of the Cybertruck. Uh, one of my colleagues pointed out that they didn't show it rolling off the assembly line. They had it sort of surrounded by workers. So I don't know if that's a signal or not. But this Cybertruck, it's kind of a weird thing. It's very different looking. It's been delayed for two years. There was that botched reveal in 2019 where they they threw a metal ball at the, the allegedly bulletproof glass, and it was so not bulletproof. Given all this hype, all the waiting, is there still that huge demand for this thing? Well, there's demand for trucks and growing demand for e-trucks. Uh, you're right; uh, it is a little surprising uh, that they didn't uh, show it more in action um, than than what they did. But uh, given given the the last go round, I think just not bringing it out in bubble wrap was probably a little bit of a pyrrhic <laughs> victory. Yeah. Uh, I think uh, the look of the truck is odd only if you're not used to watching Star Wars or Battleship Galactica. I think it uh, looks comfortable in those universes. Uh, the universe of Texas and Colorado, uh, it's an open question whether people want something that looks like it uh, might fire lasers at you. Yeah, I think that's one of the interesting things. So there's supposedly between one and a half and two million reservations. Who knows how many reservations will actually turn into things? But you made a really good point there, which is this looks so different. So you know the the truck market for EVs it's still beginning. You've got Rivian's got one, GM's got the Hummer truck. They're bringing out the Silverado. I I think that may be out. That there's the Ford 150 Lightning, and the Lightning is interesting because that's a sort of that's the one that I think people want and we just found out that they are going to drop the price on those. Uh, cheapest version of the Lightning is now going to start around 50000 which is a 17% cut. It, is this due to the Cybertruck, do you think? I think the timing of the announcement might have something to do, might very well have something to do with the announcement. Uh, it's more complicated than that, though. Uh, certainly, the F-150 and all of its iterations is the a uh, real star in the portfolio for for Ford, and uh, they certainly want it to continue being that way, with it being the best-selling truck and having been so for uh, the better part of half a century, I guess. Uh, they're going to protect that. One of the ways to protect it uh, is to you know bring down your margins. Uh, and sell for a lower price and sell more, uh, and hoping that you know the production volume is going to scale to where you start making some of that back on on uh, on the volume. I think that a large part of the price reduction here is probably attributable to the tax incentives uh, in the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, which are really only applicable. Uh, for trucks under seventy thousand dollars, I think, and given that uh, they're, re it's really hard to acquire uh, an F one fifty. Sorry, it's uh, eighty thousand for trucks, um, fifty five thousand dollars for the sticker price uh, on a car. Uh, anyway, 
with this reduction, they're going to allow far more people to qualify for that additional uh, up to $7,500 credit. Uh, and, and I think that's a big chunk that they're in position now uh, to actually uh, produce enough of these uh, if they have to and they, and they want to, uh, where they can bring the price down in, enough and, and throw in that uh, tax credit on top of it to attract quite a bit more volume. So maybe they had this in the works, and maybe they uh, maybe they bounced it a little early once once the Cybertruck went out. I mean, who knows? Who knows how these companies work? Well, I think that the pride that they take in being the top seller uh, is running into the probably uh, elevated uh, projections that uh, Tesla has of being able to produce hundreds of thousands of these and and having you know over a million already ordered so uh, whether that's entirely an accurate uh, you know description of the real numbers we'll never know but uh, Ford is going to want to protect its moat uh, on this one and protect uh, the gem of uh, you know of its line. Uh, lowering prices is one way to do it, and the fact that it'll uh, probably reduce uh, some profits is is okay as long as they uh, remain number one. That's such a big calling card for the company. Yeah, and the thing about the Ford Lightning is it it looks like a regular truck, whereas the Cybertruck looks definitely not, as you said, like like a regular truck. Yeah, we'll see what the market is for a truck that looks as unique as the Cybertruck currently looks. Uh, certainly, it it does not uh, seem likely that Ford is going to want to produce a different looking truck from the most popular truck in the world. So, with these bigger vehicles, you've often got more range anxiety. Tesla originally promised 500 uh, miles on a single charge for the Cybertruck. There was a rumor from a bearded Tesla guy on Twitter saying the company might only roll out with the 350-mile version to start with. Uh, some other uh, brands, Jim Silverado, for example, promising 450. With trucks, it seems like range is more important because you've got towing to consider, right? Sure. As powerful... Uh uh, an item as range is in the consumer's decision on whether to buy an electrical car, uh, it's that much more so for trucks, which are heavier vehicles and are loaded up with far more weight. Uh, so the you know, a description of 500 miles is always going to be an, an unloaded vehicle, probably. And certainly, Tesla has a little bit of a history of overpromising, both on the timing of, <laughs> yeah. of delivery of things and uh, any number of other things, while having obviously achieved uh, phenomenal things, you know, outside of what it promises to do on the calendar. So, you've got people that are going to be testing this. Uh, what does what does 500 miles really mean? It means if you've got a full charge. It means if you've got an empty vehicle. It means if you've got, you know, a 75 pound kid driving it. Uh, we don't know. Uh, I, th I think that uh, there's going to be less range than advertised, and that's going to be an issue that gets uh, improved over time. Uh, but uh, Tesla doesn't want questions out there. Uh, about the range uh, when it's trying to make sales, and I'm, I'm afraid they're not going to be able to get away from those questions being asked. Oh, I'm sure there will be videos and documentation and all sorts of things. And it's interesting to watch because we've got uh, Tesla reports later this week, Ford reports, I believe, next week. 
EVs are still growing, but they're growing a little less rapidly. Uh, you talked earlier about government incentives. We've seen price cuts. Uh, Tesla is now the pretty much the standard for the North American charging stations, so we're getting more of that. Is all of that is that that going to lead to EV sales increasing, or does something else need to happen, or is just just the cycle that we're in? Well, there there are a number of. Um you know, vectors that a consumer is going to be deciding. One of them, the top one is money. And, and Ford has done a great job of getting out there saying some of these trucks are coming down $10,000 in, in the sticker price. Then you're going to throw on the tax incentive. And somebody that was considering this a week ago uh, and is now considering getting it for $15,000 less or, or $1,750 less, uh, is really going to be excited to to execute on what they were hesitant about. If price was the issue, uh, as as you say, you know the charging stations uh, are are things. Uh, there are certainly more of those uh, and, and closer together in in the Northeast, where most of these uh, EV sales uh, and California are, are occurring. Uh, you know, the trucks are going to be a, a different issue. Uh, there aren't yeah. just going to be as many close together charging stations in the geographies where the trucks are uh, more likely to be bought. So, uh, I, th I think that's going to be a, a challenge. Um, you know, Ford is a couple of years into this already and is selling a few thousand of these a year, uh, not the levels of the uh, you know, hundreds of thousands that uh, ultimately they, they hope to be selling. You know, charging station availability will improve, but it's going to be harder to do it in rural geographies. Let's take a pivot and talk about a little mergers and acquisition. We always seem to get these on like a Sunday night. This one actually, I think, came out on Saturday. Eli Lilly, they're purchasing an obesity drug maker, uh, Versanis, for uh, up to $1.93 billion. That's, of course, if certain sales and development milestones are released, are met. And so, Eli Lilly, they make Monjaro. That is a diabetes drug, but might it's on the path to getting approved for weight loss. This obesity gold rush seems to be uh, quite something. It seems like every company is trying to cash in right now. Yeah, well, there's a number of reasons for that. One, uh, the prevalence of obesity in America is uh, alarming and uh, has been growing, and nothing has changed that. So these drugs might do something to change it. But also for the drug companies, uh, pursuit of that market comes at less of a political cost. And you can sort of compare and contrast the, the two stories uh, that Eli, Eli Lilly is in the middle of today, one the acquisition of a company doing an obesity drug and the other uh, new trial results uh, for their Alzheimer's drug. One of those two, um, when it comes into the market, uh, is going to be greeted uh, with demands uh, that the pricing be affordable. And it's really not the obesity drug. Uh, I think there's less of a political push that oh oh my goodness, you know, uh, it's nobody's fault that that they're they weigh more than they'd like to, and and so they should be able to get uh, their hands on these drugs at a price that uh, is is incredibly affordable. And and drug companies are doing wrong by developing these drugs and then charging a lot of money for them. I think that's an area where companies can have more pricing power. Uh, and and Alzheimer's is something that. I think, obviously, those that uh, 
suffer from it uh, don't have uh, any any you know uh, of the behaviors that that, that uh, you know obesity has so you know that those are those are conditions that are beyond the control of those suffering and and I think that that raises uh, a political willingness to put pressure on companies to uh, make the cost affordable, despite you know what the drug companies will tell you is the enormous amount of money that they uh, spend developing the drugs and the the pricing points that they need to make it uh, you know worthwhile to their shareholders to uh, pursue uh, incredibly important uh, discoveries as as you know all, uh, any kind of cure or amelioration of Alzheimer's would be. Yeah, that's true. We've already seen that with uh, Biogen's drug Lakembi, the, when uh, that's another Alzheimer's drug. When act, that uh, was announced, uh, the FDA approval, the first thing was was the concern about the price. Well, you know, this Versanus drug, it's uh, this is going to be hard to pronounce, but it's bimagrubab, and it does something a little bit different than the semi-glutide drugs, which are like Ozempic, and it helps people lose fat while maintaining muscle mass. And that's kind of interesting because there's been a lot of like the Hollywood talk about like Ozempic face, where your face gets gaunt because you've lost muscle mass. So it seems like it could be a key advantage. Huge market. This is supposed to be a forty billion dollar market by twenty thirty one. So we've got. Uh, Novo Nordisk, they uh, do Ozempic and also Wagovi. So, with Eli Lilly in the mix, is this something where, as an investor, you might want to get a basket of different pharmaceuticals that are focusing on this space? Well, in really any of these companies, you're investing in a, a basket of various drugs uh, that are treating various diseases uh, and are going to uh, outlive their patent protection at various times. So, uh, any one of these companies, Novo Nordisk or Lilly or, or some of the other major pharmaceuticals that uh, have, uh, you know, attempts, trials, or, or drugs on the market. Um, you're, you're really, for the most part, investing in, in a basket of uh, drugs as it is, and getting a pure play uh, is, uh, you know, something that you probably, you know, you, you take a big risk and big reward on, on a one drug, pure play, one disease, uh, trial level company. And Eli Lilly can easily take that risk, um, you know, as it's done with its acquisition today. Uh, but yeah, most investors should be aware that uh, a, a, a one drug, one disease, uh, pre-market, uh, especially for something uh, that is going to attract a lot of competition, uh, comes with a lot of risk. Yeah, absolutely, and that's the difference between investing in some of those smaller biotechs that are, you know, uh, you know, pre-approval things like that, very risky, one disease. This Eli Lilly is kind of the opposite of that because it's got so many things. It's got five other obesity drugs in uh, phase one and phase two. It's got, like you mentioned, Alzheimer's, uh, ulcerative colitis, all other types of uh, different things in the pipeline. You know, we recently had a bull versus bear argument on fool.com and it was about Eli Lilly. And the only bear argument that the writer really made was that maybe the success is already priced in because it's got a forward PE ratio of over 50, which is high for the industry. I think the industry standards around like 17. So if you're looking at a giant like this, is, is the price more important than the potential? How do you think about it as an investor? Well, I think it's a, it's a strong point uh, given the price of, of Lilly right now. Uh, now, the argument against that 
uh, is probably uh, Eli Lilly has done a phenomenal job of delivering uh, excessively good returns to shareholders, and and that uh, that's one of the reasons why uh, the price is where it is is a belief that uh, that will continue to happen. And since the bull bear argument was done. You've got these two pieces of news coming out already. One, the acquisition uh, of the uh, further obesity drug, and, and also the good trial results from the Alzheimer's drug. So uh, there's a you know a portfolio of good news uh, that one wishes all of these companies to come out with uh, regarding good trial results, and not all of them obviously will be. So you know the the price does seem it's traveling. Pretty close to its 52-week high. I'd agree that uh, to me, I'd, I'd want to wait and uh, look at the company outside of the the 24, 48-hour period when uh, great news is being released. Uh, I think that uh, that juices the stock. It has done so with Lilly uh, over the last uh, couple trading days, and I think that uh, although it's not moving up today, it moved up very strongly on Friday. So I think that uh, you know you're probably going to be able to find a a better price uh, at some point. The market's uh, you know, at 52-week highs, and, and Lily is almost there itself. Yeah, when when everybody else gets excited, that's the time to maybe get a little less excited, right? Well, I, you know, let's get excited for the actual results uh, of of trials that are uh, helping to cure things like Alzheimer's. That's certainly worth uh, as much excitement as one can generate, but uh, it doesn't necessarily, as we talked about the the pricing of the drug, which hasn't been announced. The, the drug isn't approved yet. It's it's, right. it's had very good trial results. Uh, Lily is expecting. Uh, something before the end of the year, and it looks looks positive. But uh, what price they can get for it, and what price uh, you know society is going to tolerate for that, uh, are things not entirely in, in Lily's control. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Bill. Last question for you: Would you drive a Cybertruck? I, you know, if given one, yes. <laughs> All right, fair I, enough. I, I don't have a lot of use for a truck in my life, but uh, there's 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 a price at which I will own a Cybertruck for sure, and it's a very very low price. But if somebody wants to hook me up with that, uh, yeah, of course. All right, we'll let Elon Musk know. Thanks for your time today, Bill. Thank you. A resumption of student loan payments could have a big impact on the economy. I sat down with Matt Frankel to discuss what's next. Let's get into it because it's a little complicated right now. We know that the Supreme Court ruled against student loan forgiveness. There's a new plan that seems to be in the works, uh, the Savings on a Valuable Education or SAVE plan. Uh, Can you explain a little bit about what that's about? Yeah, so when the the Biden administration originally put out their proposal, um, student loan forgiveness got all the headlines, and rightfully so. Um, it was the big big news to you know just wipe ten to twenty thousand dollars of student debt per borrower off the books. But there was a lot more included in the plan, and the Supreme Court's decision didn't affect that. So the save plan that you just referred to was actually in the original plan; it just wasn't called that at the time, and now that student loan forgiveness is kind of off the table, that's kind of jumped to the forefront. So, what that does is it's designed to make your student loan payments more affordable. So, it does two th- two main things. It 
cuts the amount you're going to have to pay each month in half as a percentage of your discretionary income. Uh, income-driven repayment plans today require borrowers to pay about ten or at most ten percent of their discretionary income, and this caps it at five percent for undergraduate loans. So that's the first thing. And number two, it actually raises the definition of discretionary income itself from 150% of the federal poverty line to 225%. So, not only does it cut the amount of your discretionary income you have to pay, it also changes what discretionary income is to something that's more favorable for borrowers. So, the net result of this is a lot of borrowers are going to see that they have to pay less per month, much less per month toward their student loans than they did before the payment pause. Interesting. Okay, so this is only for federal loans, and I saw it doesn't help uh, parents who took out loans for kids, right? The, the save plan does not um, apply to Parent Plus loans. Um, there's a lot of great benefits for Parent Plus loans, like they do get to participate in some forgiveness programs. Like for example, if the parent works in public service, they can use public service loan forgiveness for for Plus loans, which a lot of parents aren't aware of. But no, the, the this plan itself is not. Uh, designed for parent loans. And so that's the first part of the plan. And then it looks like there's a second part that takes place uh, in about another year in July. And it talks about a shorter time to loan forgiveness, which I think is really important. Yeah. So, well, first of all, student loan interest technically starts on September 1st and repayments technically resume in October. I say technically because part of the plan was what they call a one year on ramp, it's essentially a grace period. Where any missed payments for the first year through the end of next September don't count against borrowers and interest doesn't get tacked onto the balance. So that's number one. You mentioned a shorter time to forgiveness. That's designed for lower balance borrowers. Uh, one of the parts of the plan says any loan that was originally under $12,000 is forgiven after 10 years of on time repayment under the SAVE plan or any income driven repayment plan as opposed to 20 years for higher balance loans, um, which uh, the current um, forgiveness timeframe or repayment timeframe for for higher balance loans is 20 years for undergraduate loans and 25 for graduate loans. So, this is designed, the, the point of this is so that anyone who borrowed money to go to community college can be completely debt free after 10 years, even if they don't, they aren't required to make loan payments because of their income. Well, let's talk a little bit more about that on-ramp program that you were talking about. So, it gives people sort of it's it's sort of like a, a chance to get people restarted because I know a lot of people weren't paying uh, during the pause, and so it's basically it is an on-ramp, so they can they can pay they can they have a little forgiveness without getting their credit score dinged or without getting uh, sent to debt collection. How do you feel that is going to start the process? Is it going to be a slower on-ramp because there is that forgiveness built in? Well, I, I hate to borrow this term from the Fed, but it, it could create more of a soft landing for borrowers. The payment pause was set to expire. I mean, the Biden administration announced that when the Supreme Court decision came out, the payment pause would expire. But I don't think anyone really believed them. Uh, if we're being totally honest, it, how many times had we had a, a restart time frame before, and it ended up getting kicked down the road? But the debt ceiling deal kind of took it out of the Biden administration's hands and made it official. So, if everybody had to restart paying their student loans in October, one, it wouldn't have given the Department of Education enough time to get that save plan up and running, and number two it would have created a big shock to a lot of borrowers who aren't used to having that payment in their budget. 
I mean, I'm a student loan borrower. I haven't made a payment on my federal student loan in over three years. I'll have to figure out where that fits in my budget now. So it, it kind of helps people figure it out. It's kind of an honor system thing in that they say, if you can't afford to pay, you should, but if you don't, we're not going to count it against you. Um, I'm actually curious to see how many people start making payments, given that the on-ramp makes it so that they won't be penalized for a year. Um, so I'm curious to see if people actually start repaying their loans, or if this is essentially another payment pause. Uh, but it, it's, it should help a lot of borrowers absorb the impact and kind of figure out their new normal when it comes to their budget. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm curious about that too because when you tell people they they won't be dinged, then it may maybe they wait a little while. But but it also kind of uh, maybe it it lessens the blow of this macro concern. There's a lot of talk about this. A lot of economists have different opinions. Could it really uh, destabilize spending, saving? We know consumers have been spending a lot lately, and that has not slowed down uh, despite inflation. Is is this when the finally the long-awaited recession might start? Well, the fact that they're giving that one-year on-ramp definitely helps lessen the probability of a spending recession because younger Americans are the ones that generally have more disposable income. You know, the, the younger the when you first become an adult, you don't have family yet. You know, when you first get out of college, you don't have as many obligations with your money. So people who haven't had to make student loan payments have had more discretionary income than ever before. And that's that could be set to go away, but like I said, it remains to be seen who's actually going to start repaying. I'm not going to, you know, ask you if you would start repaying. I'm not going to tell you if I'm going to start repaying uh, on the show or not. Uh, but they did say if if you can afford to pay, you should. But they also said that you know interest isn't going to capitalize. So there's really no no benefit to starting repayment earlier, other than in your, you know, your balance is going to go down if your payments are more than your interest. But I, I don't think this is going to be the trigger to cause a recession, to, to better answer your question. I think if a recession is going to happen, it's going to happen. Um, I think that there's a high probability of that. Even if they if, if they forgave 100% of student loans, I think there's a high probability of, of a recession happening. Let's talk about what companies might suffer when the loan payments uh, kick in. One of the areas I was thinking about was cars, because new car costs uh, costs or new car sales for the first half of the year were up thirteen percent, and a new car is so expensive; it's forty six thousand dollars is is the is the median. Travel, people have been spending like crazy going on trips. It feels like everybody I know is in Europe. What are we? What should we be looking at here? Is it retail? Is it travel? Is it auto? What might suffer? Well, travel has been one of the biggest winners of the past couple of years, so I'd say that would be one that could suffer more. Um, people haven't been buying more stuff necessarily in the in the you know in the pandemic wind down as opposed to spending money on experiences. People have been able to buy stuff this whole time. Um, so, so that you haven't, you didn't see a real surge, you know, when COVID restrictions were lifted in just people buying stuff. But travel has definitely been a big beneficiary. So, I, we're already seeing consumers spending pullback on travel. I mean, I I own a vacation rental. My rent is down year over year, as is are most people who have vacation rentals in major cities. Um, I could see Air, companies like Airbnb being a, taking a hit from this. Disney reported that its theme park attendance is down significantly year over year. This is normally their busy season um, when kids are out of school, and you're seeing things like that suffer already. And when student loan repayments start again, 
you're going to see discretionary spending really take a hit across the board. So I would say that I'm not necessarily worried about you know lenders like people making their car payments and things like that because that's things people need. Before that, it comes to that they're going to cut back on things that they want. And what they've wanted for the past two years or so is travel and and experiences, and I think that's going to be the biggest effect you're going to see. Yeah, yeah, that's that's what I'm thinking too. Let's talk about the other side of it. What companies might benefit when student loan repayments kick in? I mean, the natural ones are the the companies that ha- that offer private student loans and refinancing and things like that. There's not going to be a big rush to refinance. The two public companies that I can mention that that offer this are SoFi and Discover, uh, both offer pr- uh, student loan refinancing. But right now, the interest rates you get on federal loans is better than anything you're going to get refinancing. It's a very small group of people who are going to benefit from refinancing. Essentially, you to benefit from student loan refinancing right now, you have to have gotten your student loans when interest rates were relatively high, and you have to have great credit. And you have to not be able to benefit from income-driven repayment plans or loan forgiveness or anything like that. All of those have to be true for you to be able to benefit from a private refinancing loan right now. There is a small group of people who will. I don't see it being a massive rush to refinance, at least right now. If interest rates fall, that might change. You know, if if market interest rates on student loan refinancing go to two to three percent like they were for a while. Um, that's a then things will get very interesting for those two companies I just mentioned. Uh, but for the time being, I don't see it being a massive benefit, but it certainly won't hurt. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Deidre Bullard. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.